right. Well, we're going to be finishing up John chapter 11 tonight, moving into John chapter 12. And let me say this as we get into it. This passage is a little bit different. It's kind of like two snapshots in one. Finishes up what we saw last week about the resurrection of Lazarus. And you would think there would be great rejoicing. And we get to that, but that's not where it begins. Uh, in fact, it doesn't begin that way at all. Look at verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. So good news there. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So this is almost like ancient tattletale. They'd seen this miracle, and instead of being excited about it, they went and told the establishment, and look what happens. <clears throat> so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that'd be the Sanhedrin, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, that is incredibly significant because it shows exactly what is at the heart, in part, of the opposition against Jesus. And it's really interesting how they talk about this because this time they don't dispute that Jesus has done miracles. In fact, the word that they use here for signs talks about the fact that it's something that has special meaning. So they weren't disputing that Lazarus had come back from the dead. It seems from the lexical form here, they weren't even disputing that that meant something. They just didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, and here we indeed see why. It's about power. It's about position. It's about losing control. And I think from a historic standpoint, we can look at this and we can shake our heads and go, this is crazy. They had the absolute son of God, the Messiah, the only one who can do this kind of thing right in front of them. And they would rather hang on to their own power and position and control than acknowledge his Messiahship. And on the one hand, we would be right to shake our heads. But on the other hand, we should also look in the mirror. Because how many times in our own lives, though it didn't lead to the death of Jesus on the human end of things like this, would we be guilty of a similar crime? That we want to maintain power and position and control and not bow our proverbial knee to the authority of Jesus. What was in them is in all of our sinful hearts. And it points us to the fact that we have to have something outside of ourselves, someone outside of ourselves, to deliver us from this same kind of malady. But what, what they do, they find themselves in this catch-22 kind of problem. The miracle is real, but what are we going to do about it? And out of the shadow steps this man, Caiaphas, who verse 49 tells us was the high priest that year, and he said to them, and this is very kind of rough language, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And I love John's commentary about this here in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only the nation only, 
but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, there's a few things we need to talk about here, but let's talk about Caiaphas first. This man was a Sadducee. meant that he did not believe in the resurrection under any circumstances. Not that of Lazarus, not that of Jesus. Resurrection did not happen. And then on top of that, he was a collaborator with the Romans. And so he didn't want anybody rocking the boat. So on the evil human end of things, he certainly was their man for the hour. And yet at the same time, under John's commentary here, isn't it profound what he said? That it's better for one man to die than the whole nation. So he thinks he's doing this thing. He's solving this problem. He's putting out the fire. And yet in the background, the sovereign providence of God is using this and what becomes the kangaroo court and all of the things that lead up in Passion Week to bring Jesus' death and ultimately resurrection to pass. But it's so interesting how the hinges of God's providence work also in concert with humans making this kind of decision and ultimately perilous mistake. Look at verse 53 and 54. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. But now let's loop back around, and let's talk about the principle that I alluded to just a moment ago. And that is that nothing can derail God's sovereign plan. He can use anyone and anything to advance his purposes. And here we see it almost from a negative light. They are doing something evil, and God is going to bring about something good. It's the same thing you see in the story of Joseph, the quintessential verse there that brings it all together in 5020 in the book of Genesis. As he's talking about what happened <coughs> to him with his brothers and so on, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So there in the Old Testament, we see evil humanity doing evil things and God using it ultimately in the long run for a good and righteous purpose. And I think that's a severe encouragement to us. And I say severe encouragement because so many in this room have gone through horrible things. You've had great sins perpetrated against you. You've had great tragedy come upon you, some of you. Then on top of that, we are all well-skilled in making our own mistakes, making our own mess. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, God still kindly and rightly and powerfully accomplishes his purpose even in the mess of life. Friends, that's an encouragement to us. Caiaphas could not derail God's plan. He helped establish God's plan by no design of his own. And every single thing that happens to us, God has a purpose for it. He has a plan for it. He has a use for it. He has a ministry to come out of it in many cases. And we need to look to him and ask him for great and available help when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations. 
God can use anyone and anything to advance his purpose. So be encouraged tonight. Now, that gets us to verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, the Passover that we're talking about here is obviously the large and significant feast. This would have been a very important religious festival uh, for the observant Jews during that time. It was preparatory as part of the ceremonial system that we don't have to fulfill anymore because Jesus has fulfilled that for us. But it points to the purification that was to come. They would have engaged in a lot of different washings and, and different types of offerings and so on to prepare themselves for the events that were to come. And that's why this would have been happening. And in the midst of all of this moving and in the midst of all these people coming to town, they begin to ask this question in verse 56. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another, <coughs> as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? So there's an electric atmosphere there. A lot of chatter. Will he come? Will he not come? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So that is the context that happens right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's really sad when you think about it. He does this wonderful, glorious miracle, and yet immediately the plot to kill him for doing things just like that begins to take even more root. But even in the midst of all those dark clouds, we do have somewhat of a rainbow. Second snapshot here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. So here is the celebration party. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Now the other gospels chime in on this as well. Mark tells us that this house belonged to Simon the leper, chapter 14. Matthew tells us that all the rest of the disciples were there, chapter 26. So evidently, this was quite the table. It would have been set for at least 17. And the idea here was probably that it was a thank you for Jesus, a, can you imagine that over the, uh, the banner of the fireplace there? Welcome back, Lazarus. And they're all gathered there celebrating. You can also imagine that the conversation would have been pretty lively as well. Simon the leper, or rather former leper, he might have said something like this, man, you wouldn't believe it. I was there and I watched the scabs fall off my hand and off my face. My fingers grew back. Lazarus might have leaned back and said, listen, that's great, but let me tell you this story. I was actually dead, for real dead, in the tomb, covered up, wrapped up dead for four days. So thanks for that but I'm going to win on this one. And in the midst of all this joy and what would have certainly been delicious food, I'm sure <coughs> something begins to happen in verse 3. It says that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this may not seem very significant to us, it is very similar to another anointing that is mentioned uh, uh, in, in one of the other Gospels in Luke. But I believe, second principle here, that Mary's anointing of Jesus has much to teach us 
let's unpack just a little bit of it here. First thing would be that it is a picture of extravagant love and great cost. Now, I'm sure nobody woke up this morning and was Googling what is a Roman pound, but it would have been 11 to 12 ounces, about the size of a can of soda, it seems. And what she had here was expensive nard, expensive perfume. We find out later uh, that it was the equivalent of 300 denarii, and one denarius was equal to a, day, a day's wage for the average worker. Would have been probably about $10,000 worth of perfume here. But the big headline is it would have been one year's salary for the average worker. So she is not giving him, you know, one squirt on the shirt or a little bit behind the ear or on the wrist. She breaks the whole jar and pulls it out, or pours it out on Jesus. I think that is her way of saying that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth her best offering that she could give, the family heirloom, if you will. And clearly that is communicating to something to us as well, that we should be willing to give Jesus our best. Now, for most of us, it's not going to be a $10,000 uh, jar of perfume, but we do have gifts and talents that ultimately come from the Lord in the first place. We do have wealth that he gives us. We do have relationships that we can turn toward him. We have tons of resources that we can go and do likewise and seek to communicate the same thing that Mary was communicating, that Jesus is worth our absolute best. Now, also, the way that she gives this gift, I believe, is of significance as well. In this culture, a woman's hair, and the Bible speaks about this, was her glory. And uh, I think also over in 1 Peter, you see the imagery of, 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 there's a concept at this time where women would have jewels in their hair and that kind of thing. That's not what's happening here, but the use of hair and it being a woman's glory would have been very significant. And so the fact that, that she probably sits down in front of him, puts this on his feet, undoes her hair, and then uses it, as the scripture says, basically as a towel to wipe it away, would have been significant as well. In fact, when Jesus talks about this over in Matthew chapter 26, he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, it's also interesting to note that the entire house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So again, this is not a small, off-in-a-corner kind of activity. It's not a chintzy use of this perfume. It was everything that she had, and it filled the house. Now, there's one other thing to notice about this as well, and that is that Mary's gift was a foreshadowing of Jesus' coming death. Now, there's some textual markers here. You see what happened right before this in the section we looked at tonight. You see what's about to be said in just a moment that we'll get into about with Judas and the way he's described and so on and so forth. But even this spice itself was used as a burial spice. We talked about that even with Lazarus in the past couple of weeks. Naturally, this would have probably been a spice that would have been used for him. And then I'm sure it's used again in just a few weeks when we'll take a look at the death of Jesus. So there is a sense of foreshadowing that's happening here in the midst of this act of worship. 
And when you take all that together, kind of the practical things that we can learn and also what it points us to, I think it moves us toward asking this kind of question for us tonight. And that is, in light of everything that Jesus has done for us, what would a right response to him look like today? Some of this we alluded to already, that it's offering our time and our talent and our treasure and so forth back to him in worship. But also it reminds us this is part of why we gather every week, because we want to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. We want to live not just Sunday, but every day, as Tozer said, within the smile of God, that we are constantly reminding ourselves of the goodness and the sufficiency and the greatness of Jesus and pushing all of our lives toward him in worship. And when we think about this, doesn't it drive us to the gospel itself? This Jesus who is receiving this wonderful gift is the same Jesus who lived, who died, who rose again, and now offers us peace and friendship with God and purpose and meaning in this life. There is nothing that we could give Jesus that could compare to what he has already given us. Even our greatest gift to him pales in comparison to the gift of himself that he has given us. So as we hear this tonight, let's be appropriately challenged to go and do likewise in this way, whatever that looks like for us tonight. But let's also be thoroughly reminded of what is the base and the motivation for our giving of any kind in the first place. It is the gift of Jesus himself. And may the gospel strengthen us, shape us, comfort us, challenge us, and give us courage as we seek to move ahead. So that's a little bit about Mary and her gift in the first three verses. And then immediately we get almost the mirror image of that in verses 4 and following. Look at this. But... Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, and then we get this parenthetical here from John, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, first statement out of his mouth there, doesn't sound too bad. Hey, this guy, he's in charge of the money. He's thinking about practical ministry. He wants to care for the poor. He might have a point. Might have been better to sell that off and maybe give Jesus a thousand and, you know, go the rest of it to, to helping the poor. If that was really what he meant, we could have that conversation. But that's not what he meant at all. And that's why John includes this other material, because we see what was in his heart. The picture that we have of Mary is that she had an appropriate detachment toward possessions, and she gave Jesus everything that he, she had, proverbially speaking, the best thing. And Judas was eaten up with a love of possessions, and that's what he really wanted. He wasn't there for Jesus. He was there for what Jesus provided. He was there for the stuff that came along with Jesus. And it's interesting, this type of contrast that we have here in the chapter, because John 
uses this motif time and time again throughout the book. And this, uh, you, you see almost a, a good and an evil example, an authentic and a fake example. The one he likes the most is perhaps light and darkness. David pointed this out to us when we went through chapter 3. And the scripture there that really draws us together is, For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And when you take all this together, it's almost that John is saying this, that if Mary provides an example for us to follow, Judas provides an example for us to avoid. We have one that is held up as a thumbs up and one that is held up as a supreme thumbs down. And I don't think that any of us in this room or in Judas territory tonight, certainly not in the way that he was, but I think the wink toward be careful with possessions and materialism and what it can do to you is a good, good word for absolutely every one of us. We've talked about this many times on our journey as refuge. We will talk about it. One of the great things about living in Williamson County is there's a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of resource. There's a lot of extra. And one of the dangers of living in Williamson County is exactly the same. That the more stuff that we have, the more easy it is for us to begin to trust in that stuff and think that we don't need Jesus. He might be good for salvation, but we got the rest of it under control. And I think when you look at somebody that obviously doesn't even look to Jesus for salvation, but is consumed with what possessions can do for him, it can be a warning to us. A bridges out, turn back, stay away, don't be this, follow in the other way. And I think we'd be wise to pay attention to that. So let's look at how Jesus responds to Judas's rebuke. Verse 7, it says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So here, very clearly, Jesus is foreshadowing in his own language that which is to come just a few days later. And then he makes this interesting statement here in verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And I don't think at this point Jesus is making some great theological statement about poverty and what we need to do with it or not do with it. I don't think he's wading into that at all. I think his heart toward the poor is obvious, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Clearly, Jesus wants his people to care for the poor in a variety of ways. And I think what he's doing here is he is focusing the disciples' attention and saying, listen, I'm here with you now, physically, in your presence. That will not always be the case. So we need to keep the focus here, and you're going to have plenty of opportunities elsewhere and at other times to continue to minister to the poor. So focus on me. That's what he's saying. Now look at verse 9, because here we get some more narrative commentary of what happens after this takes place. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
And let's drill down on this just for a moment, and we're going to make some application of this as well. I think this, kind of like what we saw back in verse 48, is a stunning indictment of what religion, apart from Jesus, will do to you. In these people's case, it literally made them premeditated murderers. That's what it did. Because if you build up your system and your system is not founded upon Christ, you can end up anywhere. And these people had been so deluded to think that it was okay, not just to kill Jesus, but to kill someone that Jesus had brought back to life. So let's hear the warning and the danger of dead religion apart from Christ and let that lead us toward a true relationship with God in Christ alone. And as far as what we have here, I think you get another example that is worth following. And that is in Lazarus. That he is a wonderful example of what Jesus can do in our lives and the impact that we can make. You know, one commentator that I came across had this great little statement about, about this conversation that they would have been having there. And they said this. It said, it seems that there was nothing really outstanding about Lazarus. In fact, it seems he never said anything worth recording, never did anything worth recording. Yet he ended up being one of the great witnesses for Jesus. Why? The answer is not in what Lazarus did for Jesus. It's in what Jesus did for Lazarus. Oh, friends, isn't that good news for us? Because every one of us in this room, even the most gifted, the most skilled, the most talented, at the end of the day, compared to Jesus, we are ordinary. There is only one truly extraordinary person in the universe, and that is Christ alone. But I love the encouragement that comes along from seeing how Lazarus, who was another ordinary guy, he was our brother in ordinariness, if you will, apart from what Jesus did for him. And this commentator went on to say that he said it like this. He said, even though we do not possess the faintest trace of genius, perhaps we have very little we can bring to Christ. Yet if we were dead in our sins and if over us a voice has cried, come forth. And if we have risen to newness of life and the master has looked at us and said, unbind him, let him go. So now we are free. And we too have become an unanswerable argument for Jesus Christ. Every believer's life has been so changed that the only way it can be accounted for is the power of Jesus. If we have new life and we're fellowshipping with him, as was Lazarus, we are great arguments for the gospel, unanswerable proofs of the reality of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage some of us tonight. You may have had a particularly not great week. You may have had things happen to you. You have made big mistakes. You have faced an unusual amount of trials. Friends, if Jesus has unbound you just like he unbound Lazarus, you have something to say for him. You have a witness 
that he has for you to bear in this world. He is not done with you. He is with you and for you and has a ministry for you. And all you have to do is be available. That's where it begins. It starts with just being open to him. In Lazarus's case, it started with him being so sick that he died. And yet, is that not very similar to the first principle that we learned tonight? That nothing can derail the sovereign plan of God and he can use anyone and anything to advance his purpose. Some of you who are discouraged tonight, be encouraged. God has work for you to do. God loves you and is for you in Jesus. Now, let's think back through this tonight. Two snapshots, but we've covered a lot of ground. Not all good ground. Some of it is pretty hard to talk about. But here's the best news of all this. No matter what leaps out to us from this passage, it all points us to Jesus. The establishment could not kill him. He is victorious. You think about the types of situations that he ministered into. You think about what he did in Mary's heart that would prompt her to respond in this way. He's doing the same type of thing in our hearts tonight. He is moving us toward worship in him, toward bringing him the best that we have, whatever that is. You think about Lazarus and the witness that he bore. Jesus is stirring that kind of witness in all of us. So the question I want to end tonight with is simple but significant. And that is, what is Jesus saying to you from this passage? How is he stirring your heart in worship? How is he encouraging your heart with the difference that you can make by his grace? And most importantly, how do we see his glory? How do we see the unstoppable plan of Christ moving forward and the greatness of who he is and what he's done revealed even by this passage? Let's go to him now and let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful that even in the midst of awful things that humans did, it did not derail what you were doing. Lord, we thank you for your victory in that. Lord, we thank you that you so moved in our sister's heart from so long ago, and we're still telling that story today. May you so move in our hearts that we would give you our best even today. Lord, we thank you for your power and your victory over death that we see on display in our brother Lazarus. Lord, we thank you of, of how that points us to the gospel and the victory that you've had in bringing us back to life spiritually. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for your glory on display. May we see it tonight. May we see it tomorrow. And may we see it until you return. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.